How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege that we have to gather together to worship you, to study your word, to uh, submit to the teaching of your word. Father, we thank you for the uh, insights that you give us into reality that we might understand uh, the purposes for our creation, that we might understand why things are the way they are, and that we can understand about your grace and salvation and how we can grow and mature spiritually as believers. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, a couple of announcements. First of all, in two weeks, it's going to be Thanksgiving. Uh, Wednesday night, the night before Thanksgiving, we have been... Uh, uh, moving it that week to Tuesday night, having Bible class on Tuesday night just to alleviate the pressure from all the families who are trying to travel, get food prepared and everything else, so just uh, alleviate the pressure. So on that week, uh, Bible class will be on Tuesday night. Also, just to prepare you for the Christmas holidays, at least at this point, I think we'll have uh, Bible class on Tuesday night during the holiday weeks, the week of Christmas and uh, New Year, since Christmas and New Year's both fall on a Thursday, that would mean a normal Bible class time would be competing with Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve, and I don't want to be here by myself. So we will have Tuesday night class uh, those two weeks, at least at this point. Since Thanksgiving is just a couple of weeks off, and most of you probably don't know this, uh, somebody who was writing a letter to the editor of I'm not sure which paper. I think this went into the day. Yes, it went into the day. There was a um, noted a failure in a column to make the proper distinction on understanding the difference between Puritans and pilgrims that someone wrote in a column that was published in the day, something about the Puritans whom we know more commonly as pilgrims, unquote. That is a misnomer. This is just to add to your little fund of education here. Uh, the Puritans who settled the Massachusetts Bay Colony were upper-crust Anglicans who rejected remnants of Roman Catholic ritual, uh, which were still surviving in the state church. The pilgrims were separatists and Anabaptists who had rejected the state church altogether. They had been persecuted by the Anglicans and the Puritans in England, and so they had left and gone to Holland, and then they ended up jumping on the Mayflower 
and Speedwell, I believe, to come over here. Speedwell didn't make it, uh, had to turn back, but the Mayflower made it. So that's the difference between the Pilgrims and the Puritans. The Puritans were still Anglicans and the Pilgrims were not. So you can uh, teach your kids a little bit about that. Okay. Tonight we continue our study in Genesis. Now I want to remind everybody how I'm structuring this study. There are so many doctrines and so many topics that are touched on in Genesis that what I've tried to do is structure this in such a way that we go through the basic text. We study the the exegesis of the passage and the basic doctrines as they're set up in context. And then at the end of each major section, I have been doing some short topical studies related to the doctrines that have been covered and established in these first uh, chapters of Genesis. They're so foundational in developing a proper worldview, a pro- proper biblical worldview, starting with a, a fiat creation. Now, that term fiat is one I haven't used. It means a creation by command, a literal Six-day, 24-hour day creation. It is amazing how that is being challenged today even by evangelicals in many places, which would probably surprise you. Well, we've gone through Genesis 1 where we looked at the doctrine of God as creator, and there we saw that there is a clear distinction presented in Scripture between God as creator and man as creature, and this is foundational to understanding the creator-creature distinction, that in the Bible you have a clear demarcation between God as the creator on one hand and the creature on the other hand. Man is the creature. In contrast to this, in all paganism, and by paganism I mean all non-biblical thought, in all paganism, all human viewpoint thinking, whether you are talking about ancient mythological uh, explanations for origins or whether you're talking about modern evolution, they all hold to what is called uh, the, in some places, the continuity of being, in other places, the great chain of being, in other places, it's referred to by a Latin term, uh, the scala naturae, or the scale of nature. And the difference is that it, biblically you have a distinction between the creator and the creature, but according to the continuity of being, you have God who sort of sends out or creates all the various angels and various other creatures all the way down to to the rocks and and molecules and all are just different gradations along the same scale there's no ultimate difference in kind whereas the bible sets the creator over against the creature That's one of the first major distinctions we saw. Another major distinction we saw is that the Bible draws another distinction between man and the rest of nature, the rest of the creation. And so we can build a biblical understanding and a biblical theology of nature, which is foundational to a Christian view of the environment, which is one of the topics I hope to uh, finish studying and developing for a couple of at least one class, maybe two. Well, last the last two classes 
we looked at the subject of Adam's original sin, and so that was a topical study. Adam's original sin is a foundation for understanding imputation and salvation. Well, tonight and probably for the next two weeks, I want to look at the problem of evil, the problem of sin and death and suffering. How do we as believers handle this problem of sin and death and suffering? This is considered by many non-Christians to be the Achilles heel, the weak point in Christianity. How can you as a, a Christian claim that you believe in a loving, good, righteous God and have all this horrible sin in the universe? This is a problem that plagues many, many people. Now, we often address this from just a personal and more practical level. Usually the question about pain and suffering is couched within more personal experiential terms when somebody is in the midst of some horrible circumstance, when you face the death of an infant or some sort of infant deformity, some horrible disaster befalls someone, they lose their job or they lose their home, or perhaps it's a natural disaster such as the fires we just saw out in California, or maybe it's an occasion of a military a disaster where someone loses their life in military or it's like the surprise attack by the terrorists on September 11th, something like that, where people phrase the question, how can God let this happen? Why did God cause this to happen to me? And they ask that from a much more personal perspective. Now, when a person asks you that question as a believer, they're going to ask it from one of two perspectives. One is from the framework of their own personal uh, hurt. They're in a position of suffering and misery, and they really are looking for answers. The other way is they're challenging you. Now, how you handle or answer the question really depends on being able to perceive where the person's coming from. Are they looking for an answer in the midst of their own personal trauma or pain, or are they simply challenging you? Like, how can you as a Christian really believe in a loving, caring God when there's so much uh, pain and misery in the world. Now, that's the practical formation of the question. But we can't get into the practical or experiential side of the question and answers to that question if we don't deal with the more intellectual formation of the argument, the more intellectual structure of the argument. And here it's structured... Something like this. It relates to the essence of God, primarily focusing on his righteousness, his love, and his omnipotence. Those are the three elements of God's character that are really challenged. And here's how the argument usually is structured. If God is good, then he, that is, we would say if God is righteous, if God is good, then he must not be powerful enough to control all the evil, injustice, and suffering in the world since it continues. Or, if he is powerful enough to stop all of this injustice and suffering, then he must not really be a good God. And see, the underlying argument here is is an assumption that there's no overriding purpose great enough that would justify God to allow sin and suffering and evil to exist in the world. How can a good and loving God allow all this to happen? Either he's not really good or he's not really omnipotent or not really powerful. This whole question reveals 
the fact that this problem is one of the most important problems raised by just about anybody at some point in their life, wondering why bad things happen to good people or why bad things, suffering, whatever happens at all. But we must recognize, too, that the very fact that somebody raises this problem hints at the solution to the problem itself. The fact that we do not naturally accept a world full of injustice, suffering, disease, and death, that there's something inside of everybody, whoever they are, you're always going to have to listen to those keywords. words. They're going to say, it shouldn't be this way. This ought not be the way it happens. As soon as they're using those kinds of words like should and would, then they're making a moral judgment, and that moral judgment contains within it a reference to some sort of universal absolute, some concept of some universal good that they're appealing to, and in that they are recognizing, and despite the fact that they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, they are expressing the fact that it's not right, that something inside of them is testifying to the fact that this isn't right. This is uh, perhaps expressed in our own day by the poet uh, Dylan Thomas, who said, Do not go gent- gently into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. See, modern man, the modern pagan, the modern unbeliever, does not... Uh, excuse me, the modern unbeliever recognizes that there is something irrational here, that they've got to find meaning somewhere, but they can't just live as if there's meaningless existence, and yet on the other hand, they can't really come up with an answer to why there is suffering and pain uh, in the world. So there's a certain level of outrage at the very existence of evil, and that is a clue that we can point out that they must have some standard of what what things the way things ought to be, and that there is some standard uh, of goodness. The problem of evil, the problem of sin and pain and suffering, is clearly recognized by the writers of Scripture. And one of the things that I want to, I tried to point out and want to continue to point out as we go through this study is that. The Bible doesn't just present nice little stories. I mean, the story about Adam and Eve and the fall isn't just some nice little story about how uh, sin came, that there are so many principles that are embedded within that text that it gives us a clue as to what reality is. As we will see as we go through this study, one of uh, there's only two or three ways that modern man can really deal with the problem of evil, and one is to deny its existence and just live as if, well, it's really not that bad or it doesn't exist. That, of course, is the sort of the uh, Christian science answer, is that, that evil really doesn't exist. It's just sort of a figment of our imagination. But what we see is that the Bible deals with the reality of evil in a way that is more real and more genuine than even than, than modern writers, because a modern writer, a contemporary writer, who has rejected God, operating on atheism, operating on naturalistic uh, presupposition, will talk about how there's evil or there's injustice in the world, but he can't really talk about injustice to the extreme that a Christian can because it's so overwhelmingly pessimistic and depressive that he just can't go there. So we, as believers, when we're dealing with someone who is presenting more of an intellectual challenge to to God and to Christianity, can use that sort of like like a uh, sort of like in Judo, where you use the 
the momentum of the opponent against them. Don't get caught, as I've said again and again, when you're trying to interact with someone who's a non-Christian, don't get always get caught into their the trap of their agenda. You know, it's sort of like the, answering the question, have you quit beating your wife? You know, however you answer certain questions, you're in trouble. So I think that it's better to handle the problem by turning it back on them. Well, as I pointed out, the scriptures, clear, the writers of scripture clearly recognize the depth of the problem of sin and suffering. This is something that is real. We can't just sort of, uh, step past it and not emphasize it. For example, Psalm 40, verse 12, the psalmist says, For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me. In this case, it's a recognition of, of um, violating the law of volitional responsibility, making bad decisions, and, and uh, reaping the negative consequences of what they have sown. Evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head, and my heart has failed me. Uh, Jeremiah says, Why has my pain been perpetual and my wound incurable? This is Jeremiah 15:8. Why has my pain been perpetual and my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? And then in Romans 8:22, Paul notes, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Everywhere we look as a Christian, we see evidence of this problem of sin and suffering and death. It, it screams at us from every aspect of creation. And only as a Christian do we have the answer for pain. Just listen to the unbeliever. He wants to say that there's, that there's no God. But he constantly appeals to the existence of some sort of absolute through using words that are universals. Always listen to those words like nobody should ever do that or everything or all. Um, the statement, all values are relative. Well, you have to watch out. If all values are relative, is that value relative? So you watch out for those universal terms, the oughts, the shoulds, the right, and the wrong, because they show that there's this, in, in, no matter how screwed up their conscience may be, Paul argues in Romans 2 that the very presence of the conscience, that there is a sense of right and wrong, of oughtness, that that, indicate, that is a sign that they understand that they're a fallen creature. That is evidence of their negative volition and their suppression of truth, and that is a point that we need to highlight. There's a tension they feel, and I think that in, in witnessing in some circumstances, not in all circumstances, but where there's a level of resistance and hostility, what you have to do is turn things back on them, make them feel the inadequacy of their own position before you ever get to a point where you can uh, get to get them to understand what the scriptures are saying. So we're looking at this problem of evil, and one of the reasons we're doing so is because everybody, whether it's a sophisticated or an unsophisticated approach, has some makes some attempt to explain origins, where we came from, where man came from, the purpose of man, and if you're going to explain where man came from and have some sort of theory on origins, it's got to explain the origin of evil, the origin of suffering, and the origin of, of uh, pain and misery. Now, there's basically two broad answers. As I have said again and again, there's only two ways to answer any question about life. 
either the biblical viewpoint or human viewpoint. It's either divine viewpoint. The Word of God expresses one consistent, harmonious answer from Genesis to Revelation. There is a consistent, harmonious answer and viewpoint of everything in reality. It touches every issue in life. I really like to hit this many times that it, it, it focuses on, it gives us a philosophy of history, gives us po- a political theory, legal theory, ethics, gives us a basics for understanding economics and labor. I always like to put that in there because many people think that, well, economics, that's the last thing the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about everything, gives you a framework for every area of thought. It is not just some superficial book that just talks about God and salvation, how you can get to heaven and how you can have a relationship with him. It is directed to man so that man can know how they can, with a divine viewpoint approach to reality, continue to exercise dominion over every aspect of creation. So there's only two ways to look at anything, and that's the divine viewpoint way and the human viewpoint way. But the human viewpoint way is multifaceted. There's lots of different types of human viewpoint solutions. You may have a uh, mythological approach, as you have in the ancient world, or you can have a modern naturalistic uh, evolutionary approach, which is just as much a myth as the ancient mythologies. It's just couched in technical scientific terminology, and men with PhDs and high IQs uh, write volumes about it and debate about it and make it seem as if it's more intellectually defensible than ancient paganism. But as we'll see, it's all reducible to the same basic system. So even though human viewpoint may have various different manifestations to it, it still expresses the same basic viewpoint that man is trying to explain reality apart from God and he is suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness, according to Romans 1, 18 and following. So in this little topical study that we'll engage in the next couple of weeks, I want to examine what the Bible says about the origin of evil and sin and suffering in the universe and what that tells us about the nature of God. Now, as I've said, in the way this argument is structured, it's a challenge and a question about the essence of God that Is it really true that a good and loving and omnipotent God would let all of these evil things happen? And what I hope to show you in the next couple of classes tonight and next week is that it is only the Christian God and the Christian view of sin and suffering and evil that will allow us to honestly explain and understand the existence of evil. In fact... If the all the, the alternatives to the position of a loving, omnipotent God controlling evil are are difficult to live with. It's impossible to live with any of the other any of the alternatives. What we're going to see is the only really adequate explanation for the existence of suffering is by postulating a God that is loving and a God who is omnipotent. That is the only way to explain it. So the way we ought to, I want to approach this is utilizing our strategy of trying to uh, throw the issue back on the human viewpoint challenger rather than uh, addressing the challenge head on 
which is how can you believe in a God who allows all these things to happen, let's throw the question back at him and say, well, assuming for a moment that you're right, that that's really not a tenable position, how do you explain the existence of suffering and disease and pain and evil? What is your explanation for doing this? And so by doing that, we can help the unbeliever who is challenging us or maybe the Christian who just seems to have had a blowout on the uh, on the path of his uh, Christian life to understand some more about the reality of suffering, pain, and evil and the fact that there is a loving, omnipotent God who will ultimately bring resolution to the problem. Any other solution, and let me say every other solution to the problem, ends up with some sort of hopeless, dark, depressing, or pessimistic view of reality that people just can't live with. That's why we live in a time when you have such a plague of, of drugs on on uh, school campuses, why you have such a plague of alcoholism. People People have been left hopeless without a God, and the only way to dull the pain is by pursuing drugs or by pursuing entertainment or pursuing uh, just fun activities in life, anything to distract them from the emptiness of existence as it's described by modern thinkers. So we're going to set this set this up and go through the information. Now let's just review what we've learned from the Bible so far. First of all, we know that in the beginning we have an eternal righteous God and that the God of the Bible is distinct from any other God that is ever postulated by any human system. The God of the Bible is both personal and infinite. As a personal God, he is able to have a relationship with each individual human being. As an infinite God in all of his perfections, he is over and above everything in the creation. And so he is able to rule the creation. Another other terminology that is used to express this, uh, synonymous with uh, pers- being a personal God, he is a God who is imminent. This is spelled I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T. That is not the same word as imminent, which is spelled I-M-M-I-N-E-N-T. Immanent, with an A in there, means that God is present to every part of his creation all the time. He is involved in his creation and every aspect of his creation. It is the opposite of the idea of transcendence. Transcendence means that God is over and above and beyond everything in his creation. God is both imminent and transcendent. He is a personal infinite God who stands over his creation. That means that the implication from that is that God has the God is in control ultimately of what is going on in human history. Jesus Christ controls human history. Second point, we've learned that God created a perfect universe. Perfect God cannot create anything less than cre- less than perfection and he created a perfect universe. He created this perfect universe initially in eternity past. At some point in eternity past, you have the initial universe 
which is inhabited only by the angels, and there is no sin. So we'll put up here minus sin. And then we had our first fall. It's the fall among the angels. It's the fall of Lucifer that is described in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Now, it's important to recognize that we live in a day when there has been a shift in the thinking and a negative uh, in a negative way among many evangelical scholars where they are beginning to say that, no, Isaiah, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 do not describe the fall of Lucifer. The creature that's described there is, well, in Isaiah 14, this is simply the usage of some ancient myth that is being used to describe the fall of Babylon. And Ezekiel 28 is talking about a, a human king in hyperbolic or metaphorical language. And it's been demonstrated by a number of scholars also that this is completely false, that no matter how many times you read these uh, liberal writers, or in many cases conservatives who have been influenced by liberal theology, they continue to assert that there's some some Canaanite myth or ancient Near Eastern myth that, that this is based on, and yet no one has ever found any evidence of any myth at any time in any ancient civilization that comes even close or parallel to describing the events of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. And we have gone through that in detail, so we don't need to do it again. So we have the fall of Lucifer. And then there is a judgment on the universe, and then God restores the universe, and so there is a second creation or a restoration that takes place. And this is a perfect environment, and in some way God protects. He ropes off this new restored creation so that there's no influence of sin or evil from the angelic fall on this new restoration. The only influence that's going to come is when Satan utilizes the serpent to tempt the woman. But this is a perfect environment that they're in. There's no evidence of any prior fall. There's no evidence of sin. There's no destruction. There's no disease. There's no death. There's... uh, Nothing negative. It is a an environment of of absolute perfection. So we know that's the third thing we've emphasized is that there are two falls. There is the fall of Lucifer, then a subsequent fall of mankind. Now, fourth, we've learned that the effects of the human fall transcend the human race. In Romans 8.22, we learned that the whole creation groans under the curse of sin, so that Adam's decision to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil didn't affect just the human race. It affected all of creation. It, it, it changed the dynamics of physical laws. I think it was when Adam ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that the law, of, the second law of thermodynamics went into effect, which is the law that everything moves from, a, well, the two laws of thermodynamics, everything moves from a state of, uh, I mean, excuse me, the second law states that everything moves from a state of order to disorder into a state of entropy. And I think that law went into effect with the fall. So you have a radical change in physical laws, in biological laws, in botany, and we've covered that in detail. So it is at that point that suffering and disease and deterioration enter into all of uh, the natural world, all of the physical world, not just the human race. Furthermore... 
we have another clue in the Bible in Revelation 22.3. Revelation 22.3 states, There will, and this is taking place in the new heavens and the new earth, where we have the statement, there will no longer be any curse. That's all we need to look at in that verse. There will no longer be any curse. So what we learn from this is that sin and evil and disease and death and destruction are bounded in a biblical worldview. They are limited. They're finite. There's a point when evil begins. There's a point when evil ends. There's a point when death and destruction begins. There's a point when death and destruction will end. There will be resolution to the problem. And that is the conclusion that biblically, according to the biblical worldview, evil, sin, suffering, and pain are all finite with a beginning, and more importantly, there is an ending. And it is all under the control of God. Now, having reviewed what the Bible says about sin and suffering and disease and how it began and how it will end, let's look at some examples from the human viewpoint perspective as to how they explain evil and the existence of evil. See, when you get caught in a situation where somebody's asking you, how can you believe that there's a God when there's so much sin and suffering in the world, you need to be able to think through and you need to turn that back on them. Remember, that's the strategy. Well, you're right. That's a tough question. How do you answer that question? Let them trap themselves. As Shakespeare said, let them hoist themselves on their own petard. Give them the example to set the, give them an opportunity to set the trap and fall into it. Okay, let's go back into the ancient world. We did this when we looked at creation back in the fourth or fifth lesson in the, in the series, and we'll do it again. The Babylonian, uh, origins myth was called Enuma Elish. And that was the creation, their creation epic, which describes the early gods and goddesses and the, their interaction and how they created all of the uh, universe and how they created the uh, all of the living things on the earth. So in that creation myth, they're going to reveal how ancient man, in his rebel- having rejected the truth of God, is going to try to explain where or, where evil came from. So here's an example from uh, the major gods at that time were Apsu and Tiamat. Apsu represents the male, Tiamat the female. It is her body that's eventually killed and turns into to earth. So that's they have a very physical kind of idea. These aren't just spirit gods out there. There's, they're not immaterial. There's this physical element there. They're called um, sort of the primeval uh, water gods. Now, at this time, they've had offspring. And this part of the poem, this is a from the book, the Genesis, the Babylonian Genesis by Alexander Heidel and his translation of, of uh, Enuma Elish. And he says, the poem goes, the divine brothers gathered together, they disturbed Tiamat. Now this is their offspring and they're disturbing, they're causing all this upheaval and misery and suffering for Tiamat, the mother. And they, they disturbed Tiamat and assaulted their keeper, yea, they disturbed the inner parts of Tiamat, moving and running about in the divine abode. So it just looks a picture of a family and the kids are running amok and there's chaos. Notice it starts 
with chaos. It starts with pain. It starts with an unpleasant environment, and that's there from the beginning. As I'll say again and again and again, there's no mention of how pain began. It's just there from the beginning. Uh, Apsu, that's the father, could not diminish their clamor, and Tiamat was silent in regard to their behavior, yet they're doing, it sort of sounds like a very contemporary home, doesn't it? The parents just can't control the kids. Yet their doing was painful to them. So you have a recognition that from the very beginning, before there's ever earth, before there's ever mankind, and the ultimate reality, pushing things as far back as you could in the Babylonian uh, cosmogony, there is there is just pain uh, and misery already existing. And then we find Apsu, who calls his helper Mumu, to help him persuade Tiamat that all three of them should destroy their noisy progeny. And this is what the poem goes on to say. Their way has become painful to me. By day I cannot rest. By night I cannot sleep. I will destroy them and put an end to them. In other words, I'm going to commit infanticide and kill my kids. I know none of you ever felt that way. Uh, their silence must be established and then let us sleep. So the mother vehemently protests and says, Why should we destroy that which we ourselves have brought forth? Their way is indeed very painful, but let us take it good-naturedly. Okay, that is how uh, Heidel translates this particular text. So what it shows is that from the very beginning in their in the Babylonian conception of reality, there is already pain, misery, chaos, and disorder, and suffering. And you parents recognize that the suffering is brought on by the children. Okay, now it's interesting, these, these, these ancient myths, though, all gain a certain, there are certain elements of truth there because they they have survived. The, the evolutionary perspective of history is that religious beliefs d- were developing and they went through these uh, primitive stages and then they ultimately developed into a, more, a higher form of Judaism and then Christianity. But what, we, what I've said again and again is in the Bible, what there is is a deterioration, a decline. You start with the absolute, and then as men are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, these myths often contain uh, vague shadows and memories of the truth of Genesis. And I ran into one that, that is really astounding. This comes out of a southeastern, uh, Southeast Asian people called the Karen people, this was referenced in a book by Don Richardson. We saw his book, uh, a movie on his uh, activity as a missionary in Arian Jaya called The Peace Child a few years ago. Well, he went to work with another people, and he wrote a book about that experience called Eternity in Their Heart. And the Karen people were people uh, that had this particular legend, and he referred to the Creator as Yahweh, Yahweh, you know, Y hyphen W-A, very similar to Yahweh, the Hebrew name for God. Yahweh formed the world originally. He appointed food and drink. He gave the fruit of trial. He gave detailed orders. Mulali, this is the serpent creature, Mulali deceived two persons. He caused them to eat the fruit of the tree of trial. They obeyed not. They believed not Yahweh. When they ate of the fruit of trial, they became subject to sickness, aging, and death. So this was discovered as part of their ancient tribal beliefs in the mid eight, mid 1800s. 
before any American missionaries ever got there. I mean, this had survived down through centuries, showing that where did they get it? They got it from their ancestors that came off the ark with with Noah, but they still had gone negative and to to the gospel. Another example of an ancient mythology gone awry is Hesiod's Theogony. Now, Hesiod is the earliest example of Greek mythology that we have. And Hesiod actually got, shows that if you trace out all the elements of, of Greek mythology, and you're familiar with Zeus and Hera and the, the gods of Mount Olympus, that really has its roots over in Babylon. If you trace it back, and there's a book by Alexander, I think it was Alexander Hislop, called The Two Babylons, who traces all of this back to Babylonian uh, mythology. And in Hesiod's book, which is called the Theogony, which is about the orig- which means the origins of the gods, he has some a couple of different interesting explanations there. One of them is about the origin of of the earth, and I want to read this to you. This is a quote from uh, a book on the origins of Western thought, describing or summarizing. Uh, his cosmogony. This is fascinating, again, to show how certain elements in the biblical story survive in these pagan cultures. You can't escape reality, in other words. Okay, in the beginning, uh, Eurynome, the goddess of all things, rose naked from chaos. So what, how do things start? It starts with chaos. There's something there. It's chaos. It's unformed, It's but it's there's something there. There's no... Creation out of nothing, no ex nihilo creation. Rose, uh, Euronymy, the goddess of all things, rose naked from chaos, but found nothing substantial for her feet to rest upon, and therefore divided the sea from the sky, dancing lonely upon its waves. So there's obviously a sea and a sky. There's water, water there that's been there for, for, uh, almost an eternal time. Uh, she danced towards the south, and the wind set in motion behind her seemed something new and apart with and apart with which to begin a work of creation. Wheeling about, she caught hold of this north wind, rubbed it between her hands, and behold the great serpent. Next she assumed the form of a dove, brooding on the waves, and in due process of time laid the universal egg. At her bidding, Ophion, this is the great serpent, coiled seven times around this egg. Now pay attention to this. Until it hatched and split in two. So the serpent is instrumental in giving birth to the universe. Out tumbled all the things that exist. Her children, sun, moon, planet, stars, the earth with its mountains and rivers, its trees, herbs, and living creatures. Euronymy and Aphion, the serpent, made their home upon Mount Olympus where he vexed her by claiming to be the author of the universe. Forthwith she bruised his head with her heel, kicked out his teeth, and banished him to the dark caves below the earth. See how there's this this reminiscence of the curse in Genesis 3.15 that that the serpent will bruise the seed of the woman on the heel, but the seed of the woman will will, uh, bruise the serpent on the head. So in Hesiod, in the Greek cosmogony, chaos is the beginning. It's this uh, formless uh, d- disorder that that sort of gives birth to these personifications or these these gods and goddesses. 
And as you have earth comes forth, which is Euronymy, and uh, she gives birth to, uh, with, with earth gives birth with heaven to their son Kronos. And then Kronos uh, is taken by earth who hides him in an ambush and puts in his hands a jagged sickle in order to uh, give him the tools to destroy his father. And then we're reading from uh, Hesiod's Theogony. And heaven came, bringing on night and longing for love, and he lay about earth. So you have heaven and earth are the two parental figures like like uh, Apsu and Tiamat. He lay about earth, spreading himself full upon her. Then the sun from his ambush, this is Kronos, the sun from his ambush stretched forth his left hand, and in his right took the great long sickle with jagged teeth, and swiftly lopped off his own father's members, and cast them away to fall behind him. So, there I have the quote up there on the, on the overhead. To fall away behind him, and not vainly, I'm right here, and not vainly did they fall from his hand, for all the bloody drops that gushed forth earth received. And as the seasons moved around, she, she bare the strong uh, Uranes or Furies, and the great giants with gleaming armor holding long spears in their hands. Okay, just two or three examples from ancient paganism to show how they're explaining origins. You see this beginning from pure chaos. It's not any different from modern evolution where you have a beginning with pure chance. There's always something that is there, something that is uh, present. There in, in the Big Bang Theory, you have this, this extremely dense matter that exists. But in, the, in any of these ancient cosmogonies, you have water, you have something that is there. There's no explanation of how it came into being. Furthermore, there's no explanation of how evil or death or destruction comes into being. It's there from the beginning. There's pain, there's misery, there's warfare among the gods from the very beginning. There's no explanation of sin and evil. And what that tells us is that in human viewpoint systems, evil is eternal. It's natural. Sin and suffering don't have a beginning. They're always there. If you stop and you, you look at, if you stop and look at, at evolution, what is the basis for advance in evolutionary theory? Survival of the fittest. Survival implies struggle. Therefore, if you're going to advance in the Darwinistic system, in the evolutionary system, there has to be struggle. There has to be survival. Survival means that something has to die and something will live. So that death and disease and destruction are not only normative, they're the means for advance. So if you're going to be consistent with it as, as, a, as an evolutionist, as an atheist today, as a naturalist, you have to think, oh, Sin and suffering and disease is good. War is good. Famine is good. You can't go anywhere else with it. You're, you're trapped by the logic of your own position. So what you have in all human viewpoint approaches to evil is to, when you're trying to deal with someone is put them in that trap to make them realize that they don't have a solution for evil. For them, evil is normal. Evil is 
uh, unbounded. Evil is eternal. Uh, Alexander Heidel, who uh, translated the Babylonian uh, Enuma Elish epic, writes uh, comments concerning that. Of the Babylonians can be said what Cicero has said with reference to the poets of Greece and Rome. Quote, the poets have represented the gods as inflamed by anger and maddened by lust and have displayed to our gaze their wars and battles, their fights and wounds, their hatreds, enmities, and quarrels, unquote. Since all the gods, he goes on to say, he concludes, since all the gods were evil by nature, Notice, since all the gods were evil by nature, and since man was formed with their blood, man, of course, inherited their evil nature. Man, consequently, was created evil and was evil from his very beginning. How then could he fall? The idea that man fell from a state of moral perfection does not fit into the system or systems of Babylonian speculation. And that applies not just to the Babylonian cosmogony, but all the others ultimately derive from that. So the first conclusion that we have based on this is the idea that we see in pagan the pagan view of evil, the human viewpoint view of evil, is that evil is infinite, it's unresolved, it's normal, and natural. It never ends. There's no basis then for making any sort of morality statement. There's no basis for making any sort of judgmental statement. If evil is normal, then how can you say it's not good? If evolution proceeds on the basis of suffering and disease and destruction, how can you say that's not good? How can you look at people, you know, 3,000 people who lost their homes to the wildfires in California and say that's that's wrong, that that's good, that shouldn't have happened. No, if you're consistent as an evolutionist, that should happen. If you look at, at, at what's going on in, in the Middle East with the wars there, that, that should go on. We, after all, we believe in the survival of the fittest. It's just going to demonstrate who's more fit to live and to go on. You have to put them in the position of realizing the tension of their belief. The unbeliever, the pagan, cannot live consistently on what he claims to believe. When it comes right down to it, there is this tremendous uh, discord with what he believes. So the first observation that I want to make is that as we look at the contrasting views of evil, the pagan view is that evil and sin and suffering, disease are all infinite, unresolved. There's no resolution. I need justice. Well, when are you going to get it? There is no justice. There's no resolution to evil. It's all normal and natural. In contrast, the biblical view of evil is that evil has a beginning and an end. It's finite. It began with a decision by a creature, either Satan or Adam. It's resolved. There's ultimately judgment at the great white throne judgment where God is going to bring ultimate justice. If there's not justice in this life, there will be justice in the future. Evil is judged and it is restricted and confined and punished to the lake of fire. And all sin, suffering, disease, and death is viewed not as normal, but as abnormal. And people know that inherently, part of their conscience. Whenever they say it shouldn't be that way, they're affirming a biblical view, but they don't have a right to say that. No unbeliever, no atheist 
has a right to say it shouldn't, it, it ought not be this way, that this is wrong. They do not have the right to say that. To even affirm something as being wrong means they are illegitimately buying into a Christian worldview of absolutes. So this is the first conclusion that we reach. The second conclusion is that when you, when you look at this view of the pagan view of evil and suffering and pain, that this is uh, eternal, it's normative, it goes on forever, is that if this is the way things are, then I am not at fault when I commit a crime, when I sin, when I do evil things, because that's just the way the universe is. In other words, it is the basis for the ultimate rationale of victimization. Man did not originate sin. Sin and evil and destruction is not the result of a wrong moral choice. It is the, it's just the way things are in the universe. Therefore, it's not my fault. It's the universe's fault. It's just the way things are. Alexander Heidel notes, again regarding the Babylonian Genesis, the problem of the origin of sin does not even enter into consideration. Consequently, in reference to another uh, legend regarding the uh, fall, and it's a misnomer to call the Adapa legend the Babylonian version of the fall of man. The Adapa legend and the biblical story are fundamentally as far apart as the uh, Antipodes. So the point is, that in all pagan thought, whether you're talking about a more primitive, mythological uh, pagan approach, such as in the Enuma Elish, uh, Greek mythology, Scandinavian mythology, uh, Mex- Mexican or Aztec uh, mythology, whatever it is, ultimately evil is always there. And if evil is always there, then it's really not my fault. And so this becomes the same basis, and you see this in Adam as soon as, they sin, and God starts looking for them for accountability. Adam says, it's not my fault, it's the woman you gave her to me. The woman says, not my fault, it's the serpents. In other words, we're just all victims. Sin and evil, I mean, it took man all of about five minutes to figure this rationale out, and it's been dominating the history of the race ever since. And and so they come up with all kinds of justifications to avoid responsibility for sin. But the Bible says that man is responsible and it does have a beginning, but there is a resolution because the sin problem was paid for by Christ on the cross. And it is because of that payment for sin on the cross. It's not just a simple little thing of paying the penalty for your sin and my sin. It goes far beyond that because it's on the basis of his payment for sin that what? That you're going to have the curse rolled back on creation eventually that you're going to have this new heavens and new earth, that there is a complete resolution to the problem of suffering and evil. And in any and every unbelieving system, there's no resolution. It just goes on and on and on because that's the way it is. And therefore, you end up having to justify sin. And it's no longer anybody's fault. You end up with problems in your in the... In the um, penal system with criminals because it's not their fault. You can't punish them. They're just a product of the universe. So let's try to uh, reform them. Let's try to uh, just make them better. And so you end up with all the problems that you have today, breakdown of family, breakdown 
uh, in schools, break down education, break down in discipline, break down in, in law and order, all comes out of adopting a pagan view of life. And it leads to pessimism. It leads to uh, a, a, a drug culture, an entertainment, uh, ple- pleasure-oriented culture that is completely divorced from reality. Now, next time we'll come back and continue to look at this in a more personal sense, especially when you come to Job. So we're going to look at Job as the biblical example of what happens when an individual is faced with unjust suffering. How do you handle that? And how does God handle that? We're going to get a perfect example of how you can counsel your kids, your spouse, people you work with, your friends, when they go through unjustified suffering... We're going to get a perfect example of how God had a personal one-on-one counseling session with Job and taught Job how to deal with undeserved suffering. Next time, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word today, to realize that that, um, in your providence you have allowed for sin and evil and disease to occur, that they're the result of the sinful choices of fallen man. They are not the result of your decision. They're not the way things were originally created. They are the abnormal uh, consequences of the wrong moral choices of your creature. But you have provided the perfect resolution, the perfect solution through Jesus Christ who went to the cross to die on the cross as a substitute for us. He paid the penalty, not for us just our sin, but for the sin principle, so that there is resolution to the problem of sin, suffering, and evil. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.